Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. Today I'm joined by Aisha Rahim, who as well as being a practicing consultant psychiatrist, is also a Chief Clinical Information Officer in an NHS Trust and has a role as a clinical lead for digital mental health at NHS England. Today we're going to find out Aisha's take on the digital health sector. Welcome, Aisha. It's so lovely to have you here. Thanks, Victoria. I'm great. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, So, Aisha, let's just start with the basics here. What does the phrase digital health mean to you? Sure. So I think there are so many different definitions, aren't there, of digital health. And for me, I always tend to keep it back to basics, basically. So for me, digital health is simply about improving the lives of patients, of citizens, using technology as the vehicle through which that's done. And you can interpret that in many different ways, can't you? Whether that's, uh, for example, people using apps for their well-being, uh, all the way to receiving care as an inpatient in hospital and the technology that supports that delivery of care. I think that all fits into the, the umbrella category of digital health, really. But it's such a, a broad and varied topic. That's that's my take anyway. But really what you're saying is that this is all about people first and technology may be just in the background helping people um, get stuff done that they need to do. I'm totally with you there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people may have come across that phrase people before tech and the technology side of things. Of course, it's vital. Of course, it's key. And sometimes, though, that's the easier bit to do and actually getting it right for what it means for a a person, a patient, because, you know, we aren't robots. We all behave slightly differently. And actually, if you keep your focus on what you're trying to achieve for the person themselves and the technology should be led by that, I don't think you go far wrong taking that approach. Aisha, I'm curious, as a clinician, what on earth brought you into uh, the digital sector? So I always laugh when I get asked that question because it's not the usual route, I suppose. And certainly, you know, I, I went through medical school, never once dreamed that I'd be working in health tech X number of years down the line. So I feel like I very much stumbled into this career by accident. It was never part of a a grand plan as such. So I started my career um, training to be a doctor, then specialising to be a psychiatrist specifically. And then as I progressed in my consultant career, I was wanting to take on more leadership roles. So an opportunity arose to take up a senior medical management position. But associated with that role, there was the role of the chief clinical information officer, so the the clinical lead for digital transformation in my organisation. So, I mean, I've always been an early adopter of technology as a consumer and also in my professional life. If there's been a call that's gone out to ask for clinical staff to feed back on the IT systems, the digital systems that we use, on how to improve things, I'd, I'd always raise my hand and volunteer to give feedback because mm-hmm. I like improving things. And so that's that was also attractive to me from that perspective. And then I, I, I took on that role. I was appointed. I also became the CCIO. And then now, four or five years down the line, my main task, my main job as a professional is within health tech and the patient facing bit of mine is a small part. So very much an accidental journey. So Aisha, just sticking with your role as a clinician, just give us a sense of what the technology state of play is for someone working in services providing care. What sort of technologies are you using? What are the good things and and what are the glitches that you experience? So I I guess that's 
it really leads on nicely from the motivation why am I doing what I'm doing so often and I'm sure I'm not the only person to think this sometimes you're motivated by what frustrates you and certainly technology in the NHS it's it's a constant journey of improvement if I can put it that way so part of the reason I wanted to take on the role of CCIO is to make things better make our technology better because as a clinician you're there to provide healthcare to patients. You're there to improve people's lives through your professional uh, practice. And technology should support that and make that easier. But often in terms of the lived experience that we have as clinicians is that technology actually can hinder and it can add time and bureaucracy to the things that you want to do in terms of delivering the actual care on the ground. And of course, we need some of that governance. We need some of that process. Um, but technology, as I said, should enable that to happen in a really smart, smooth, slick and efficient way. And actually, it doesn't. <laughs> so there are lots of problems uh, with technology and you know, the NHS is no exception to that. So I think that's what drew me to this. And we've all heard stories, I suppose, of clinicians that are trying to do their best, but it takes 20 minutes for the laptop to boot up, for example, or the Wi-Fi connection is not great in the building that they're working from. And so all of those things can sort of impair your ability to do your day job, essentially. So by making sure that we've got clinical staff involved in the design of those processes who know what it's like to try and deliver that care under already difficult circumstances, I think it really helps to make those processes better because you've got the people that are using the systems involved in the design. That sort of design thinking approach is so, so vital, of course. That's why I do what I do. There are good things about the NHS as well, because, you know, we do try and innovate and look a little bit more broadly outside of our own organisations, outside of the NHS and work with suppliers and commercial vendors because the NHS does not have the technology capability in-house to deliver all the things it needs to do. So you have to be outward facing, you have to engage outside of the NHS to to get the best for patients. But yeah, it's, it's not always easy. So for citizens who don't really think about what's going on behind the scenes, or even for startups or clinical entrepreneurs for that matter, do you find they're quite surprised that we're still so much in the foothills of digital adoption? And actually, we're quite behind other sectors when you think about it. Oh, 100%. So it's funny, actually. So we, we often refer um, to the technology bit of the NHS as a back office service. And it's almost a dismissive way of how we name what the, the function is, because actually our NHS would collapse without all the people there doing the digital support for the care delivery that goes on. But it's one of those things that people don't think about until it goes wrong. So people just assume that it's all there, it's all smooth, it's all running, you know, you know fine, really. Um, I think there's other things from the patient perspective as well. And of course, we don't want patients to have to feel um, that this is something that they are battling with in terms of accessing care. But one example, I suppose, is that patients often think about the NHS as one big organisation where everything's linked up. And if you have an x-ray in one part of the county that you live in, if you go to an A&E department on the other side of the county, they will automatically have the results of those x-rays. That's just not true. And I think it is really difficult because the NHS more operates a bit like a franchise rather than one single coherent organisation sometimes. So we have a, a real duty, I think, to try and make that feel much more seamless and joined up from a patient perspective. 
And I think from a supplier side, from a commercial perspective, because we're dealing in healthcare, because this is about people's well-beings and their lives and safety, there is, of course, massive amounts of regulation and um, bureaucracy. There needs to be governance, obviously, because the stakes are so much higher. But actually, there is so much and it is so complex that actually navigating that as somebody that really wants to do the best from patients from a commercial perspective can be really tough to try and find your way through all the bits of regulation, all the bits of governance that you need to comply with. So it's not an easy environment to work in always. Thinking about that challenging environment, um, I just wonder what difference the pandemic made. We all had to rely on technology suddenly in so many ways to get even the basics of our life, sort of keep them on track. And I, I wonder what that meant in your role as a clinician and also as a CCIO. Yeah, so I mean, COVID has been a game changer and that's been everybody's experience, hasn't it? In these last couple of years, it completely just completely altered how we do things. So uh, speaking personally, I, as the CCIO for my organisation, I was asked to lead the trust digital response to COVID. So we had lots of things to contend with and it was an incredibly stressful time. And of, of course it was stressful for the clinicians, of course it was stressful for patients. But I think it's also important to recognise that all of our support services, even if they weren't patient facing, were working incredibly hard during this point. So an example of this is that people having to isolate, people were unwell, their family members were unwell. So, of course, patients were not able to come in person. Our staff, of course, were not able always to come in person. So suddenly we had to mobilise the ability to work remotely. And that involved getting hold of kit, involved getting hold of laptops. But our supply chain ground to a halt because a lot of our laptop components were made in Wuhan. So you can imagine the absolute scramble to get hold of the kit so that was um a real logistical nightmare i guess to use a, a cliche but we also stood up things like video consultations much more rapidly than we otherwise would have done my trust we were quite lucky in many ways because even pre-pandemic we had planned to launch a small, modest pilot of video consultations in one small service. <laughs> so we'd done a lot of the background work. We'd done a lot of engagement with our patients, with our staff. And so when the pandemic hit and we realised we would have to do this in order to keep services running and still get patients to receive the care that they need, we had to put all of our resource into mobilising and massively scaling up that project which would started off as just a small pilot really it was intended as a small pilot little did we know that we would have to ramp things up at scale and at pace so that was um an incredible sort of first few months really trying to mobilize that quickly but what it did demonstrate is that when you're all working towards a common goal things can happen really quickly and we didn't completely throw governance out of the window, of course, but everything was much more streamlined than it would have been already. But the other really nice aspect for me is the fact that we were all working together in different departments much more closely than we'd ever had to before. So obviously we had the digital team that I work in. Um, we were trying to get the, the practicalities of that sorted out, but we were working hand in hand with our clinical staff to make sure that the processes that we were trying to put in place worked from a, from a clinical perspective, but also our operational managers, they had a major role to play. And so we had these three-way conversations so closely. We were meeting daily to make sure that the right things happened. 
And whilst we'd all already had some of those relationships, I think COVID <clears throat> really cemented how much we needed each other to make this work for patients. And I think one of the positives that's come out is that we've managed to build on those relationships since things have calmed down since that initial crisis. So it's obviously been a, a dreadful a dreadful situation in the last couple of years, but there have been some gains that we've made. And I think that mainstreaming about the conversation about technology, because previously it's a little bit of a, a niche thing. I don't think many of my clinical colleagues really understood what I did as CCIO, but suddenly they, <laughs> they know what um, what needs to be done. They know the importance of clinical staff getting involved in digital transformation is. And so we've been able to ramp other things up quick more quickly than I think we otherwise would have um, done. So it's, it's had, I think, lasting impact on how we work. Just taking you back to your clinical role and thinking about the COVID response, I'm really curious about what um, it meant for your um, for your clinical team and in particular about video consultation, which of course is a technology many of you use in our everyday lives, but hadn't really been used at scale within the NHS and suddenly became like the default way of communicating, um, particularly in primary care, for example. And, and how did you use it? And what were the upsides and downsides? And, and was there anything that surprised you in that switch to remote that you didn't expect? Yeah, really interesting, actually. So, of course, pre-pandemic, all my clinics were in person. So I would have generally people coming to me in clinic. Occasionally I do home visits as well. And that's a very highly controlled environment from a professional perspective. So it's all in hospital premises or, or um, healthcare premises. The person comes to you, you've got your set appointments, you've got a start time and end time, and you've got the rest of your clinic in, in appointments. What I've noticed is that, um, you know, professional as professionals we've had to relinquish a lot of that control in some ways because you're speaking and interacting with people in their own environments which actually brings some uh, some really important positives but it also means that you're contending with life in a way that you wouldn't if the person was coming to your clinic so you'll have somebody's doorbell going or um somebody you know needing to let the plumber in or you know pets and, and children and family members potentially wandering in as well so you just there's an extra layer of things to think about certainly to ensure that you can still have a robust safe assessment via video um so it's really sort of been a new skill for a lot of professionals to mm-hmm. interact and 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 to assess via video but there are also some benefits so i'm getting to see a person's home environment more frequently than I otherwise would have done. And as a psychiatrist, that's really important as part of the assessment. So I wouldn't necessarily be the one always going out to see a person. I I work with nursing colleagues who would often do more home visits than I would do, and they would have a better sense of the person's environment that they're living in. But now I'm getting more of that insight. And I think that makes my assessment richer in some ways. But I think that always has to be tempered with the fact that sometimes just seeing person by video is not the safest thing to do. You can't do a full assessment in some situations. And also, of course, we can't forget about digital exclusion and some people not having the means to interact in that way. And it's it's not so much about devices, I find. But but for a mental health assessment that I, I would do as a psychiatrist, that can they're quite lengthy appointments. They can be an over an hour you know close to an hour and a half even two hours on some occasions depending on the complexity and if you think about people living in um disadvantaged circumstances are you necessarily going to have wi-fi if you don't have wi-fi are you going to have the data 
bundle to actually have a an hour-long conversation by video on your mobile phone so there are all kinds of things that this raises plus the fact that some people don't want to have a video appointment which is absolutely fine you know this it's meant to increase choice and increase access and not to exclude people so it brought up a whole bunch of different things that we never had to contend with before so interesting, um, Aisha. Thank you for sharing. Um, the nuances and those sort of unintended consequences are so interesting to me. Um, but you know what? I want to take you on a tangent for a moment and ask you about the Shuri Network. So you're a founding member of this fabulous network promoting equality and diversity in digital health. Can you just tell me a bit about how the network came about and your involvement with it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for those people who don't know, as you've mentioned, um, uh, Victoria, the Shuri Network is a grassroots organisation and we are there to support the visibility and participation of women from um, ethnic minority backgrounds that are working in the health tech space specifically. So my background, I'm I'm Pakistani, I'm Asian, British. I am underrepresented in technology generally as a woman, but also the intersectionality of coming from an ethnic minority background means that I'm almost always the only um, ethnic minority woman in uh, meetings that I, that I might have about digital health. So if we look at the makeup of the NHS and how many women we have working in the NHS and how many people from ethnic minority backgrounds work in the NHS, that isn't commensurate with the a uh, proportion of women from those backgrounds working in a senior level or in, in a health tech context. So there is a, a gap there. And that's what the Shuri Network is there to bridge, really. So we support people from those backgrounds. But I think the important thing is not just about that, actually having a diverse team in terms of your staffing means that you bring that diversity of life experience and that has to mean that the care that we provide, the systems that we build is much better suited to the population we serve. And that's the that's the point, really. It's not just about the inequalities within staffing in and of itself, though that is important. It's about what impact that then has for the services that we provide. So um, in terms of how it came about, it was founded by um, two amazing women, Sarah Amani and Shira Chok, who are both women from, I think, minority backgrounds working in this space. And what they realised is that when they were attending a big health tech conference a few years ago, they looked around the room. And uh, certainly when I've spoken to Shira, she tells me that the only people that she could see that looked like her in that conference pretty much were the women serving teas and coffees. And this is a big national digital conference, really. So there's something that really touched her. And so she started making inquiries about who else uh, was there working in this field from a, a female background, or ethnic minority background. And so that's how she got in touch with me because I was speaking at that conference. And from there, Shira and Amani have created this incredible movement, this network of women supporting women and also allies supporting um ethnic minority women working in digital health as well in recognition of the fact that there is a big gap that we need to to bridge here. So the network has grown over the last few years. I think we've got close to 2,000 members, including our allies. Uh, So you can join the network and you don't have to be a woman from an ethnic minority background to join the network. And what we've been doing is we've been offering um, opportunities such as shadowing as well. So allowing people to have an insight into careers that they might not otherwise have felt worth for them because I'm firm believer in you can't be what you can't see. And actually, if all the people working in the field tend to be white, tend to be male, 
how off-putting might that be to talented people that come from different backgrounds that might want to contribute to, to this work. So, yeah, we, we, we offer bursaries to nurses who are also um, underrepresented in this field. So, we, yeah, we do a lot of activism and it's been a fantastic network to, to be part of. So you've touched on talent, you've touched on sort of the moral case for diversity, but I just wonder what's the business case? Like, how do you convince the finance director or someone from a business angle that actually this is something they should pay attention to, or even a startup that they should get a more diverse workforce? How how do you make that case, Aisha? Yeah, so we know, actually, there's been uh, international research on the impact that having diversity at board level has on profitability, for example. So there was research done by McKinsey, I think. Uh, they've done a couple of different reports over the uh, the last few years. And there does seem to be a correlation between how diverse your uh, leadership is and the success of your company. So that, I mean, that's in commercial terms, but I think it's applicable across uh, public sector organisations as well. And it just brings to mind examples that I've heard of. So I know that Caroline Criado Perez, who is a commentator and journalist, she, she wrote a fantastic book called Invisible Women. And she made the point of, I think, the specific example of a piece of technology, um, a smartwatch that included a health tracker, but didn't include the facility to track your periods, for example, which as a woman, that is absolutely something that I'm interested in doing. And they didn't include it because there wasn't a woman in that decision making space. So you can see how applicable that is to the healthcare um, environment. So if you're not thinking from the perspective of your communities that you serve and the broad community that we serve in, in, the, in the UK, of course, you're not going to necessarily design systems that meet everybody's needs. And it's just not good enough in healthcare to cater for the majority in the middle. We really need to ensure that everybody has the healthcare access that they are entitled to as a citizen of this country. So if you don't have that mindset, if you don't have those experiences from those um, minority backgrounds how can you assure yourself that you are actually going to meet people's needs so that for me is the business case it's it's something about um what does this mean for providing safe and quality care because no matter what you do in healthcare you're ultimately there for the reasons that you want to improve people's lives so having that diverse representation i think is important from that perspective certainly you mentioned allies when talking about the Shuri Network, and I, I wonder what the actions are of allies, what sort of behaviours that you've seen that have really made a positive difference? Yeah, it's a really great question. So, of course, one of the things I would always recommend is join the Shuri Network, because that's some way that, yeah, that's one way that you can um, contribute, offer your time as a person that somebody could shadow, for example, and give people those opportunities and, and an insight into your career and your job. And you might just encourage another generation of people to, uh, to, to follow that pathway. But on a more granular level, I think there's loads that people can do. Um, what I notice is that a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about equality and diversity. So they may be very well intentioned, but feel a little bit inhibited uh, around raising the topic or knowing the language to use for fear of causing offence. And actually, my experience is that most people understand that this is this can be a, a bit of a difficult topic to broach. And do you know what? None of us get it right 100% of the time. But the fact that you're 
bringing up the topic and actually commenting as an ally where you think that there are gaps. It's so meaningful. So I'm thinking particularly if you notice that the teams that you're working in are not particularly diverse, if you're noticing a bit of a ceiling where people from those uh, minority backgrounds or, or women, for example, are not being represented at the more senior levels, which we know to be the case, call it out, say something about it. And if you are in a position of uh, being able to contribute to the recruitment process, have a think about your recruitment processes. Are you inadvertently discriminating against people? There's there's evidence, isn't there? I think Hewlett Packard did some research on how you phrase a job advert and the keywords that you use to describe the attributes that you're looking for can sometimes attract more men or more women, depending on how you phrase it. So the the way that you recruit and the processes that you put in place can have an impact on who you end up getting applying. So people will often say, oh, well, people from these ethnic minority backgrounds don't apply. Well, why are they not applying? Is there something that you're doing in your recruitment processes that is um, putting people off? So just having a really honest look at your processes. And it's not about blame. You know, it's not about saying that, you know, people are intentionally trying to keep people from ethnic minority backgrounds down. It's not saying that. It's just that we have some structures that are in place that aren't really equitable. And looking at it through that lens maybe there's some constructive work that you can do as somebody in a position of power to recruit, to improve your processes. And that goes for your interview process, your shortlisting process, that there's a whole pipeline of opportunity to make positive change. Thank you for those tips and reflections and hopefully some, you know, great insights for people to take away and um, act on. Um, Before we finish, though, um, I'd just like Aisha for us to helicopter right out again and think about digital health in the round. And if we could make a change tomorrow to your life as a practicing clinician, CIO, in the digital health space that would have like a really big impact, what would that change be? Oh, goodness, that's a great question. I'd probably have a wish list of 10 different things if I could, (laughs) if I had some time to think about it. I think one of the key things for me is around data and accessibility of data and actually presenting that data back to people. So, Our clinical systems in the NHS are full, full of data, but it's trapped there. And actually what we need to get better at is presenting that data back to the people that can then use that to inform the decisions about how how services are, are configured, for example. And I don't, there are some places that are doing this really well. Um, They've got great dashboards, for example, that can really drill down into um, cohorts of patients or particular services that can then be used to sort of target where we need to go next. There's also some really fantastic examples of um, suicide prevention data in my local area in Lancashire and South Cumbrian. How do we use intel from what's going on locally to reduce uh, the risk of suicide, for example, what interventions can we put in place proactively? So I think, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it, that data is a new oil, but I think we, we now need to get to the point where we are able to present that data back to uh, the people that need it. So we've got those actionable insights that we can draw. And I think that could be a massive game changer. Thank you so much, Aisha, for being my inaugural interviewee. Um, It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. And I know that you've shared some amazing insights for the listeners to take away. And yeah, I just want to say a big thank you and really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. It's been a pleasure. 
thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards the Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.